one of the most important working duos on the home front might not be who you'd expect. In fact, one of them might not be the size you'd expect. The ones who I'm talking about are a human and insect team, the honeybee and the beekeeper. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how bees helped the war effort and the products that they made, how they were used on the home front and in the military. And we're going to be looking at all the challenges that beekeepers had to deal with in the war. So let's get started. Welcome to the Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. First, I'd like to give a little update, uh, I guess a life update. I started grad school last August, and so that, of course, is continuing this semester. So I'm just happy I was able to squeeze in another episode of the podcast. Um, But while I'm in grad school, things are definitely a lot slower going with the podcast. But just know that I'm still here. I'm still planning on doing research when I have the time. And so I do have season five all planned out. And uh, this is um, something that I'm, you know, really passionate about. And and I hope that you continue to listen. And I appreciate uh, all of your patience as you wait for new episodes. So thank you for listening. I don't know about you, but I grew up with honey. Honey was a huge staple in our diet. My mom felt it was more healthful than plain sugar. So things like honey, peanut butter, and banana sandwiches, and putting honey on things um, was just standard. In fact, I remember my mom also wouldn't buy like pancake syrup or maple syrup was too expensive. So she would make this water sugar mapleine syrup to put on our pancakes. But I was so desperate for like a thicker syrup that I took honey and added maple flavoring to it. And yeah, that was my solution to having a pancake syrup. But um, I love honey. And so I was very excited when I stumbled across just a brief mention about the things that honeybees contributed to the war. And immediately this idea went into my you know, bank of ideas. And I am finally able to put this together. I'm just so excited to share with you guys. One of the most valuable resources that I came across that I don't know if I'd been able to put together this episode was finding American Bee Journal magazines. And this was like a trade magazine um, or slash hobbyist magazine because they kind of both fell into this range. Uh, And they have so much information. So in this episode, I am going to be pulling mostly from the American Bee Journal, just because it's so rich with information. Well, we are just going to get started with the biggest question. How did bees help the war effort? The biggest thing that we probably would think of naturally is honey. You know, as sugar became more scarce Then sugar was rationed in May of 1942. Among all the sugar substitutes that were available, honey was definitely a big one. And the American Honey Institute published a couple cookbooks. One was our cookbook feature for this episode called Honey Recipes for Sweets for Energy for Conservation. And then I have another one that's called Old Favorite Honey Recipes. The second one has multiple editions out The second thing that bees created for the war effort was beeswax. I actually hadn't even thought of this aspect or known how important it was, but it was very important. Beeswax was a vital war material. I found 
an amazing book called Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation by Tammy Horn. And she talks about how bees and their products were used during the war. She has this list of things um, that she originally, I think, believe, I believe got from the American Bee Journal. So this is what they are. Adhesive tape, waterproofing, like for things like tents, protecting coating for shells, belts, coils, and machinery, especially in warm climates when grease would run off. Beeswax didn't mildew, so it was preferred over paraffin for waterproofing canvas. Large quantities used uh, were used in work plants for waxing cables and pulleys. It was used for dental work for soldiers and sailors. Skin protective sun creams and camouflage makeup for commandos was really essential. Beeswax was an important component of those um, products. Waxing. Now, this one I was surprised at. Um, but I'm sure all you aviation experts would know this already. Waxing airplanes smooth with beeswax saved thousands of gallons of valuable fuel. So reducing that friction in the air. And then she quotes an, an official in the office of price administration calculated that beeswax had approximately 350 uses in the army and Navy and that there were 150 uses in the pharmaceutical fields. Now, you know, since it's a vital war material, you'd think, oh, well, there's probably a shortage. You were right. There was a shortage of beeswax. But this was actually due to the shipments that we would get from Brazil. They were suspended because the supply ships had been sunk and Brazil was like, we're not sending any more ships. So we lost those imports. And later we'll talk about the other place where we would get imports. And then she mentions that there were tips for increasing beeswax production, which were offered in trade magazines like the American Bee Journal. So they would have articles explaining to people who had bees how you could increase the amount of wax bees were creating and also using scrap wax. Now, these two things are pretty important. But that is, those two things are not the most important thing that bees offered. The single most important thing that bees did was pollination. In this article from the American Bee Journal from September of 42, there, it was called The Importance of Beekeeping. It says, the maintenance of an active and healthy beekeeping industry is an important defense measure if American agriculture is to function to the fullest extent in the present crisis. The honeybee's importance as an indispensable aid to agriculture through its pollination activities is even greater than its value in honey production. In this respect, honeybees can be considered as an agricultural catalyzer. So this really cannot be understated. Bees were extremely vital in pollination efforts. If we did not have the bees doing their work as they just naturally do without us doing anything, uh, there would be no crops for people to harvest. There would be no food to send to soldiers overseas. So the care of these insects was crucial. We're going to shift a little bit and we're going to talk about who worked in the bee industry because... The other half of this equation, of course, is the beekeeper. Uh, bees will just do what they're going to do. But if we're going to receive any of those things that they're making, like wax or honey, uh, then there's going to be need to be a human component. So, of course, the majority of those working in the bee industry were men. However, this was one of the few industries where women were welcomed. Women were... Anybody could be beekeepers, but women were actually considered superior at handling queen bees because of the delicate nature of the work. So there, you know, early on, even before the war, women were vital for caring for bees. I also read about injured soldiers. There were places that set up beekeeping courses uh, and hives that injured soldiers could learn about beekeeping and care for them. And this way, if re-entering society was not an option, 
they could still have a livelihood from selling the bee beeswax and the honey. So I felt this was really important to mention because, you know, some soldiers were not comfortable reentering society. So this was, this could have been an option for them. And the final group of people who worked in the bee industry were children. And I came across information about the 4-H Bee Club. From what I could tell in 1942, beekeeping was a new project for 4-H. But that's all I'm going to say for now because our home front highlight is an adorable story about a 4-H'er raising bees. Now we're going to talk about the challenges to the bee industry. And some of these you might not have thought would even affect them. I hadn't. So I, it's, it's going to be really interesting to talk about this. The first thing was that there was a lumber shortage. This would affect like building the actual beehives. There was also a metal shortage. Honey was stored either in glass jars and these had lids with a special like ring for a handle or most especially tin. Tin pails were the most popular uh, container to store honey in to sell, especially in bulk. And they would come in 5, 10, and 60 pound pails. But if there was a tin shortage, this would be a problem. And in the American Bee Journal, they did encourage beekeepers to do a number of things. One of them was to start substituting glass jars for the tin containers. One article called Save the Tin says, It has been the common practice to discard cans used for honey containers with only one using. Honey in secondhand cans has often been quoted at slightly lower prices. Now we are lucky to have used cans that are still in good condition. Few beemen as yet seem to appreciate how serious the container situation promises to be. Every can should be used as carefully as possible and none should be discarded that can safely be used again. The beekeeper should sell his honey with cans returned, if possible, to ensure containers for the next crop. Already, rubber and tin are precious articles which should be conserved carefully, and if the war continues as long as present prospects indicate, we may find a great many other things equally scarce. The wise thing to do is to save everything useful against the day of possible shortage. Very wise words. Uh, This was in September of 42. Uh, still a little bit early in the war, uh, although almost a year in. And they have great foresight because a lot of things were going to become even more scarce. There was also, as we know, a sugar shortage. Now, what does this have to do with the challenges to the bee industry? Because isn't the honey replacing the sugar that humans can't have? Well, the sugar was not just for human consumption, but for bees as well. This was something that beekeepers used to supplement the bees' food, especially during the winter time. And if they didn't have enough sugar, then that was going to be a problem. Their bees would starve. Another problem was poisoning. You might have heard in modern times about the dangers to bees from certain pesticides and things and that bee populations are just dying and You know, this is not a new problem. They were experiencing this problem back then as well. In this one article from May 45 from the American Bee Journal, it's called Potato Dusting Depletes Bee Population in Three New Jersey Counties. I found quite a few articles talking about uh, this danger to the bee population. And the other aspect that kind of goes along with this, that was another challenge, was the lack of food and biodiversity for bees. I found a government report from December 1942 that discussed the many important pollinating insects that were vital to crop pollination and the danger that they were in. So not just honeybees, but wild bees, some species of flies, and beetles, among other insects. It says, wherever a proper balance exists between plants and pollinating insects, both flourish. Agricultural development, however, has seriously interfered with this balance. It has demanded the growing of certain plants in enormous acreages and has unwittingly destroyed native pollinating insects as well as their nesting places. 
As a result, the burden of pollination has been increased to such an extent that wild bees are no longer adequate or dependable, particularly where agriculture is highly developed. In many places, the depletion of wild pollinators is so acute that honeybees have to be brought in especially for pollination. And so in practically all agricultural areas, honeybees are now the most numerous of the flower-visiting insects. It is essential, nevertheless, to conserve our native pollinating insects, since some species of native bees are more efficient bee for bee than honeybees and will work under more adverse conditions. As yet, however, no agency, federal, state, or private, has assumed the responsibility of conserving wild pollinating insects. You know, I was actually kind of surprised to find this report. We don't typically think of this era as a time for conservation of insects, <laughs> and but it is a little alarming that they were so worried. They make some good points where agriculture was doing these huge monocrops. This is kind of where this really exploded because of the war and the amount of food we were producing. But in the process, they destroyed native insects, you know, pollinating insects, natural habitats, and where honeybees had to be brought in to make up the difference. And something that I'll be talking about a little bit later is that there were farms that were being sold or abandoned because their owners were going off to war and they weren't going to be planting any plants. And then that source of food for the bees was no longer available. And so this was kind of a widespread problem as well. Going back to the report, it discusses, and also I saw in uh, the American Bee Journal, photographs of the difference between trees or plants that had been pollinated very well and those that were not. And the amount of fruit produced is staggering compared to the ones that were not very well pollinated. So this was a huge concern because, you know, like I said before, if bees aren't, or even other insects are not pollinating and being able to do their job, then that makes our crops not as productive. The other final reason that there was such a challenge to the bee industry was what I mentioned a little bit before. Farmers were selling their farms, which meant less food for bees. So kind of food deserts for bees. Men were joining the military and leaving their beehives. Some beekeepers who went off to war had to leave their hives to fend for themselves and then found them gone or dead when they returned. There was one article in the American Bee Journal from November of 42 called Beekeepers Go to War. It says, we are receiving reports constantly of those who are having to join the armed forces, leaving their bees behind. Sometimes others try to take care of the bees, but in many cases, the beekeeper rendered up all his combs, extracts all his honey, sells the wax, stores the equipment, and will not be back in the honey producing business again until the war is over. One beekeeper nearby reports leaving 400 colonies of bees in this fashion. Wow. Many farmers are having to dispose of farms. In Kansas, the report is that 300 farms in one region have been sold. Others report no milk available because of the scarcity of labor. Others report acres of farmland idle. We know of one farmer with 160 acres of land near our bees who will not plant more than a third of it next year. He is a man of 64 years of age without help. The government is taking steps to alleviate the disruption caused by the military duty of building the hugest armed force on earth. It is necessary, however, to keep in mind that in a capitalistic country where absolute state control is not yet a fact, the capital basis of labor and money must support the war effort and produce the food to keep it going. So this is a this is a real conundrum. Oh, I guess this was not the last thing. <laughs> the last thing was a wax shortage, like I mentioned before. In the, this article from June of 1942 in the American Bee Journal, it's called Bees Wax Needed in the War Effort. And this article calculates the amount of wax needed by the military and industries in the U.S., which amounted to about 11 million pounds of beeswax. Now, normally, the U.S. imported 5 million pounds from Africa and Brazil and domestically produced 4 million pounds of beeswax. All the imports were stopped, like I mentioned earlier, either because of the danger to cargo boats or because of agreements with Britain where it was agreed they could procure the African beeswax imports for their own needs. 
So take away those 5 million pounds, and it was quite alarming that the U.S. was only producing 4 million pounds of beeswax when the need was short 7 million pounds. Uh, This particular article gives tips and advice to beekeepers in producing more wax and to save all the wax scraps that typically went to waste. It says producing more beeswax, saving more beeswax, is a patriotic effort. It is part of the campaign for victory. That's in capital letters. And more than that, it is your duty. You now have a definite task to perform, which will help win the war. That task is to produce more beeswax. That task is to save every bit of beeswax you produce. We do not hesitate to predict that the United States beekeepers can produce a million pounds of beeswax more than their estimated production of 4 million pounds by fulfilling this task. Now, this is a lot of doom and gloom for the beekeeping industry, but there were helps for these beekeepers. One was that there was an increased sugar ration for beekeepers to feed their bees. Just like canners were allowed to request extra sugar for canning, the same went for these beekeepers. In the same June 42 issue of American Bee Journal, in this article called Sugar Regulation, it says the apparently new and permanent sugar regulation concerning beekeepers is now as follows. Beekeepers requiring sugar for feeding bees may secure permit from, for it from the Sugar Control Board. Information is at hand with the principals of the schools in any town in the United States. That's interesting. They can go to the principals of the schools who have info. The board will issue a certificate under provisions made allowable by the Sugar Rationing Board in Washington, whereby beekeepers can secure an amount of sugar to the amount of 10 pounds per colony per year for feeding purposes. This should be enough. In extreme cases, exceptions might be made, but we hope that there are no such emergencies. Blanks furnished by the Sugar Rationing Board will cover the situation fully, and certificates will be issued to the beekeeper for the purchase of his sugar as and when he wants it. In using the certificate, the certificate is surrendered to the supplier. Now, this was in June. Later in November, they announced an additional 15 pounds of sugar per colony with the caveat that it was the beekeeper's responsibility to reserve enough honey to feed the bees over the winter. This is interesting. So 10 pounds was not enough, apparently, but they also didn't want the beekeepers relying on the sugar. They needed to, I mean, typically you could reserve honey for the bees and they would feed on that instead of sugar. Uh, But obviously we love the honey and we need the honey. That was their thing that they were selling not sugar. So, um, but the government is making a point like, look, uh, you need to save some of your honey to feed your bees. There were also gas ration extensions for beekeepers. They were given additional gasoline because, you know, they have trucks that they have to, you know, take around all their equipment and their honey and possibly deliver their honey. So that was an important addition. There were also tires for beekeepers. Beekeepers were eligible for new or recapped truck tires as needed if they were transporting honey and beeswax and their supplies necessary for their production. So no other purposes, (laughs) Um, but that's really important. Next, there was also a draft deferment for beekeepers. Beekeeping and the honey wax pollination industry was considered an essential war industry. In Also in the November 42 American Bee Journal, it says beekeepers are included in the list and all draft boards have been informed of this fact. Local draft boards will have to make up their own mind in relation to each individual. Those who own bees and are called to service may give local draft boards an affidavit of their situation and the board will decide whether they are to be kept with their bees producing honey and wax and ensuring the pollination of farm crops or whether they are more useful as individuals in the armed forces of the United States. You know, I I think that that was a good way to go about it. You know, every town has its own needs. And so the local draft board made those decisions. Along with this, there were home front volunteers to care for those small hobby beekeepers who enlisted. And this one man, John 
Masick from Illinois wrote into the American Bee Journal and he said, These boys who have only a few hives think a lot of their hobby, or they wouldn't keep these hives, and they do not like to leave them without attention while they are in the service. The ones who have large apiaries, of course, have made arrangements for their care, but it is the hobbyist with only a few hives who is at a loss what to do with them while he is in the service. Realizing this situation and being a beekeeper myself, I have offered my help to different ones to keep their bees flying while they are in the army. If these boys keep the bullets and the planes flying, I think we should keep their bees flying for them, and in this way they will have their hobby when they get back home. No doubt, as the boys march along a field in bloom, they will be reminded of their bees at home, and it will be a satisfaction to them to know they are being cared for. I just, I really love that. Uh, this article is called Keep the Bees Flying. <laughs> and um, it's just really heartwarming to know that there were people like this that, you know, fellow beekeepers that cared for these people and wanted to make sure that these boys had their beehives when they got back. Something uh, fun that I came across in the American Bee Journal is that at the beginning of the war, well, still a little bit at the beginning, June of 42, there was a slogan contest. American Bee Journal held this contest to inspire beekeepers in saving and producing more beeswax. The image they were given was a, of a bee on a patriotic shield with stars and stripes in the background and beekeepers were asked to come up with the best slogan. I'll have a, a picture of this image on my Substack post so you can see what it looks like. The article says, It is a new idea to provide beeswax for hundreds of war uses. It is a new idea that we have such a definite and surprising part to play in the campaign for victory. The slogan, therefore, must stimulate this consciousness. So they were asking the readers of the American Bee Journal to come up with a slogan that went with the theme of saving beeswax and also the image. And then they asked, they came down to three picks and then they asked the readers to select the best one. The three that were the final picks were wax wages war, beeswax production aids axis destruction. Oh, that one's kind of, <laughs> kind of snappy. And then finally wax the way to victory. And the winner was let the bees wax the way to victory. This was submitted by Addison Webb of New York City. The addition of Let the Bees at the beginning was suggested by B.O. Gray from Batesville, Arkansas. And this is the slogan that they used for the rest of the war. Finally, we're going to focus on honey itself. Delicious honey. <laughs> so keeping bees and producing honey wasn't just a commercial operation. It was commonly a backyard hobby and one that was considered very patriotic. In one of my wartime cookbooks, the American Woman's Food Stretcher Cookbook from 1943, it has a page, one page dedicated to beekeeping. And when I stumbled across this, I stashed it away. I marked it and stashed it away for when I was going to do this episode because it was just so interesting to have a page dedicated to that in a wartime cookbook. I'd never seen that before. This little article is called, How Would You Like Some Bees? It says, honey is and has always been accounted a valuable sugar. And today when others are scarce, every ounce that can be added to the common store is so much gain. For the family that is attempting to be self-sustaining in this crisis, a beehive is rather a foregone conclusion. It may even be an additional source of income. But many persons without such ideal surroundings are successful beekeepers, and many more undoubtedly will become such. Some city apartment dwellers have managed to be quite successful with the busy little bodies, especially when they are near a park or neighbor's gardens. Certainly, backyard beekeeping has much in its favor, and any sizable garden with a sunny corner, somewhat sheltered from high winds, will make a happy home for your honey hoarders. I really liked reading this because it's you know, encouraging this type of hobby to make your own honey. I mean, honey, since it became a replacement for sugar, had, I'm sure, its own scarcities and um, price ceilings. And so uh, the, the fact that they point out, you know, anyone that's attempting to be self-sustaining, you know, it makes sense to have your own beehives. Another thing I was surprised to learn was that honey was considered a valuable food for babies and children. 
and scientific studies at the time identified valuable vitamins and minerals naturally present in honey. I know today we warn, you know, mothers to not give their babies honey till the age of one. But there were some people who believed babies could have honey at any time. Mrs. Henry E. Pichowski from Wisconsin sang the praises of honey in raising her children. She says, much has been said for and against honey as a substitute for sugar or syrup for infant feeding. We all know that honey is a natural sweet and that honey-fed babies are healthier, happier babies. Both of my babies are honey babies. Here is a picture of my oldest taken when she was just over a year old. And it shows a happy, plump baby standing on what looks like a beehive. I'm not sure. Something that's important to note is you might recall if you've listened to the baby episode where they used corn syrup as part of making baby formulas for those calories. And so this honey would be a similar thing. Like it's adding those calories instead of corn syrup. Just a caveat here. I am not advocating for babies getting honey. I'm just explaining how they used to do things back then. And so I, yes, I don't recommend babies under the age of one having honey. If you have any questions, ask your pediatrician. Now, uh, one thing I noticed was that many of the covers for American Bee Journal feature children and babies among flowers, with bees and beehives, or enjoying honey. And so I think that is really interesting. And maybe this is a part of this beekeeping culture uh, that we're getting a peek into, uh, that these honey babies were, you know, just a symbol of, you know, how important honey is to the diet. Now, honey education was vital to changing the public's attitude toward honey. At the time or before the war, honey usually was just used for medicinal purposes or when other sugar wasn't available for regular use. You know, sugar really was the ideal sweetener. And so unless you kept bees or had neighbors that kept bees and you received the honey, honey might not even be part of your diet. In this article called Public Attitude Towards Honey in the September 42 American Bee Journal, it says the public came to regard honey as something to be used under unusual circumstances and not to be thought of as a regular article of diet. It takes years to overcome popular misconceptions, but a great change is becoming apparent. Almost any newspaper or magazine that one may pick up is likely to have something about honey and to offer a specific suggestion for its use. Much of this is the result of the work of the American Honey Institute. No better investment can be made by any beekeeper than a contribution to the support of this organization. So they're like, hey, the American Honey Institute is spreading the gospel of honey. Let's invest in them. (laughs) It makes sense for this industry. This is very true because sugar was scarce. Naturally, there were people writing about these sugar substitutes and honey was one of them. Honey does have different properties and so you needed to educate people on how to use it. So in using honey, part of this education was telling them how to use honey. Cookbooks dedicated to using honey were valuable resources for housewives. And like I said before, the American Honey Institute was one organization that published honey cookbooks. Honey has different properties than sugar for baking and it wasn't something you could replace one-to-one. In an extension booklet from Michigan State College entitled Honey Flavor Harmonies from March 1942, it encourages housewives in the use of honey for baking. It says, an elaborate recipe book is not necessary for success in honey cookery. Having learned the basic rules for substituting honey for sugar, one may use her own favorite recipes to obtain new flavor harmonies. These are the tips that they give. Number one, that each cup of honey contains about a quarter cup of liquid. Therefore, deduct a quarter cup of liquid from the recipe when using one cup of honey in place of one cup of sugar. Number two, one cup of honey is as sweet as one cup of sugar, so no alteration need be made in the recipe to allow for sweetening power. 
Number three, use a quarter to half teaspoon of soda for each cup of honey used in baking. This in addition to baking powder in the recipe when honey is substituted for sugar. Number four, honey caramelizes at a low temperature. So use a lower oven temperature for cakes and other baked products made with honey, or they may become too brown on top before they are done inside. It talks about um, what to do when honey crystallizes and that is uh that advice is pretty much the same all of this is pretty much the same now i'm gonna skip ahead to six all honey may be used as the sweetening for fruit cakes steamed puddings fried cakes and some cookies but it is suggested that half sugar and half honey be used in most cakes unless the recipe specifies all honey and they did this with corn syrup too but corn syrup is far less sweet than honey but i do like that they say half and half because it doesn't make as big a difference in the recipe. It talks about how to store honey in number seven, um, that you need to store it in a dry place, not in the refrigerator or in a damp basement. And finally, number eight, five, 10 and 60 pound cans are the most economical containers for purchasing extracted honey. So instead of those little containers, you want these bigger ones, buy it in bulk. In conclusion, I wanted to read this excerpt from that uh, government report. It was the dependence of agriculture on the beekeeping industry. And this was prepared by the Division of Bee Culture in December 42. It says, The service rendered to agriculture by the beekeeper in furnishing the public with pollinating insects has commonly been overlooked. In too many cases, his only reward has been his honey crop, which until war years, he often had to dispose of at depressed prices. In addition, his bees were frequently killed through the indiscriminate use of insecticides by the very man he was benefiting. Under such circumstances, since the beekeeper's interest was not safeguarded by sufficiently high honey prices, rentals, or a subsidy of any kind, the keeping of bees has declined in many communities, and this in turn has meant decreased yields for the grower of insect-pollinated crops. I really like how much this emphasizes the importance of the beekeeper and the job that they were doing for agriculture, and yet agriculture was the very thing hurting their bees, that they were acknowledging just how vital their job was. Now, it does mention rentals, and that meant beekeepers that would travel and transport their beehives and take them to a farm so that that farm could rent the bees for the pollination aspect. My husband's grandparents did something similar on their farm in Montana. They had a beekeeper, I think, from California that would bring their bees up in the summer and then in winter take them back down to California. And as payment, they received honey. So it was a nice trade-off. And I did come across stories in the American Bee Journal where they talk about beekeepers transporting their bees uh, seasonally so they could take advantage of the warmer climate in the wintertime and then go back north for the summertime. Um, so that is still something that exists today. I There was so much information from these magazines, it was just a wealth and I could not include it all. In fact, I didn't even really look into the newspapers as much because uh, I had these wonderful magazines. I'm so grateful to have them. And I hope that you learned a little bit today about bees and beekeepers and their importance on the home front. Today's cookbook feature is Honey Recipes for Sweets, for Energy, for Conservation. This was published by the American Honey Institute out of Madison, Wisconsin in 1942. This is one of the tiniest cookbooks I have. It's so cute and small, but it has actually 31 pages. So they crammed in the information in this really tiny blue print. <laughs> uh, on the front is a pretty cute design. It uh, pictures a little girl looking in the window at her mother. And it, oh, I didn't notice this before. She's making cookies and the recipe says honey cookies. And then on the back is an advertisement for this brand of honey called Three Bees Honey. It doesn't really have any of that typical propaganda inside 
it just states what this cookbook does. Uh, and it gives more explanation of the title inside. Honey recipes for sweets. Honey is a natural, unrefined, nutritionally val valuable food for energy. Honey has an energy producing value second to few foods. For conservation, use honey to replace the sugar that you formerly used. And then on the other side, it says how to purchase honey, to store honey, to liquefy honey, to measure honey, to preserve honey flavor, to use honey in infant feeding, to use honey on fruits and cereals. Um, and then there's just all kinds of recipes. Um, let's see. There are breads and cakes, cookies, desserts, meats, salads, sandwiches, vegetables. Wow. So many uses for honey that you might not think of typically. Now, I did make two recipes from here, but I was only planning on doing one. That's because the first one didn't turn out quite the way I was hoping it would and so I mean I'll still talk about it a little bit but I'll focus on the one that um, I was excited to make in its replacement so the first one I made was honey sour cream spice cupcakes and it says especially good for the lunchbox I was very excited for these um, they just sound really delicious I did not have sour cream, so I used yogurt, and I was a little lazy. I did not drain the yogurt. It wasn't um, Greek yogurt, so it was probably more watery than it was supposed to be, and then there was a few texture things that I ignored because also laziness. <laughs> I would not recommend that, though. If it says to sift, just sift the dang flour, you know, <laughs> but um, so I did not do that, uh, like I'm always saying you should. Sorry. Um and then the other problem was that it has you divide the eggs. Oh, I hate it when they do this. <laughs> They're so obsessed with the egg whites in the 40s. But it says three egg yolks and then three egg whites. So you whip the egg whites separately and then fold it into the batter later. And that, I'm sure, makes it fluffier. Uh, I didn't do that. Um, I was like, I'm not doing that. Just flat out refused. So... But texture-wise, they turned out pretty soft. It's just they were a very flat cupcake, if you know what I mean. Like, they didn't have a nice rounded top in any way. And they kind of have a sticky sheen to them as well. I'm guessing that's the honey. But the problem with this was the sugar content. This cupcake recipe, it only has two cups of flour, and yet it had one cup of brown sugar, and one cup of honey. That was way too much. And usually, wartime recipes have less sugar. Like, they're not as sweet as modern recipes, but oh, no, this one was. I tried putting buttercream on it just to see. Oh, it was terrible. It was just way, way too sweet. So this was a disappointment. I feel like with a few tweaks, maybe, I definitely less honey. So probably less brown sugar too <laughs> just less on everything but it is nice because it has ground cloves allspice cinnamon and even has a whole teaspoon of baking soda so I'm not sure why they didn't rise it's probably my fault though because I didn't do all the extra <laughs> texture things oh well they do taste good um I'll give them that but for a topping I wouldn't even know what to suggest because it's just too sweet all right, so because I was so disappointed, I decided to make something else, and that was this very exciting coconut custard pie. I've never made a coconut cream pie before or coconut any pie before, so I was like, I'm going to try this. And I used the crust recipe from my royal cookbook from the 1940s which has baking powder in it, surprise. <laughs> and that, that's a good pie recipe, a pie crust recipe to use. But this coconut custard pie recipe is very brief. It just has six ingredients, two eggs, a quarter cup of honey, two cups of milk, an eighth of a teaspoon of salt, one cup of coconut, and then nutmeg. I love this. I love that it had so few ingredients. So I mix it together. I forgot the nutmeg. So I just put it in the oven. I had to pull it back out and kind of sprinkle and stir it in. <laughs> I was not having a great day. And it says to pour into a pastry shell and bake it at 350 for 45 minutes. 
I pre-baked my shell slightly. I think this definitely helped. But 350 for 45 minutes was not nearly long enough. And I even used like a vintage pie plate that's smaller and it fit the recipe really well. It just, I don't know, it just didn't bake in time. I had to add an extra, I think, 20 or 30 minutes. Um, it, it browned up very nicely. Like it looked really nice when I pulled it out. But uh, the problem with this recipe was that it wasn't sweet enough. <laughs> so I think increasing the honey to a third of a cup and reducing the milk a little bit because it was almost like too much custard to coconut ratio. Like I felt like it needed more coconut. One other reason why I made this particular recipe was because I found coconut shredded so similar to the 1940s. And this is very hard to find. In the 40s, the coconut shreds were longer and very skinny, and I don't think they were sweetened. It's hard to find that combination now. Now they are very wide, shorter, and sweetened. And so when I found it, I grabbed a couple bags because I was so excited to finally find the same shape because it has that specific texture. I also felt like this pie needed some vanilla. It was just coconut, which, you know, hasn't been sweetened, and then custardy egg flavor. Um, the honey just needed to be more to kind of mellow it out. I don't know. So tweaking on this one, too. <laughs> I will have both of these recipes on my Substack post, so you can check them out yourself and tweak them as you will. <laughs> For this episode's Homefront Highlight, we have the story of James Beacon and his 4-H project in bees. This comes from the American Bee Journal, June 1942. Now, this story is about this boy that talks about how they, his family moved into the country. He lived his whole life of 12 years in the city with many friends of his own age with an easy walking distance. So he found the country to be pretty lonesome. He looked around and inquired a bit and found that the only club that he could belong to out in the country was a 4-H club. But in order to become a 4-H club member, he would have to have some projects. Now, you know, living, he says, now living in the country with many acres of rich, fertile soil on which to grow the feed to fatten your calves, pigs, chickens, etc., is one thing. But to live in the country without any acres, with only a big yard, is an entirely different thing. When I realized what I was up against, I groaned deeply and long. I thought my goose as a 4-H club member was cooked. <laughs> then he talks about how his mother came to the rescue. And she suggested that if he did not have the acres of land necessary to raise pigs, calves, chickens, etc., he says, I had just better take something for my project where I could make use of the neighbor's fertile fields. I guess I must have looked at her a little worriedly because she took one look at my face and burst out laughing. No, son, she said, I have not lost my mind. It's just that I am using mine and you are not. Then she went on to explain that our yard was plenty big enough for me to keep bees as a project. As she talked, her excitement increased. Why, she cried, your bees can forage for their food from all the farmers within two and a, or two and a half miles from here. They will not only allow your project to feed off of their land, but they will actually feel you are doing them a favor in allowing the bees in their fields. Well, needless to say, her enthusiasm was catching. Before the day was over, we had written several cards trying to obtain literature on bees. We sent to Washington, to bee supply companies, etc., and how we did pour over that literature as it arrived. The more we learned, the more we wanted to learn. He just really went gun-ho on this project. But there, you know, it was winter time, so no bees yet. They did all their research during the winter, and that was a really great time to prepare. And he he decided on a particular bee that was a disease resisting type of bee and they ordered their bees their uh, their five modified datant hives and then he went to his dad to enlist his help his dad was not as excited as mom <laughs> it took a little bit but he graciously consented and helped him build the hives 
and he had a good time painting the hives as well. Now, when these bees came in the mail in the spring, his mom and um, so James and his mom, you know, got the bees safely installed with the queens. Then once everything started blooming, the bees got busy. What I really love is how he talks about his parents' enthusiasm. Now, you know, he went to all this work and, you know, along with his mother's help and his dad's help. And, you know, the bees did their hard work. He and his mom just loved sitting and watching the bees do their jobs. He says, we had a grand spring and on the 31st of May, the white clover began blooming. I began putting on supers, so extra parts to the beehive so they could grow. That's about the time my dad came to life. If there is one thing my dad loves more than honey, it's more honey. He watched now with interest. One day when I was not at home, a swarm of bees lit in one of our apple trees. Knowing how I would feel if he let that swarm get away, dad went in and arrayed himself for the fray. That's where the bees showed a great deal of horse sense. Dad hived those bees without any trouble at all, and they won him over completely. The next day, I heard him bragging to one of our neighbors how thrilled he was in catching that swarm and hiving them so easily all himself. I was nearly knocked pop-eyed to hear him calling my bees his bees. His bees, mind you. When I tried to tell him and hinted ever so gently that they were my bees, my 4-H project to be exact, well, it was his turn to be knocked pop-eyed. He was just stunned for a few moments, but actually to have heard him talk, you would have sworn that they were his. But that's, oh, then he talks about his mom saying the same thing. So he does talk about how a big disappointment was that their club did not offer prizes for honey projects that year. It was something new, and so it had not been provided for. So he's hoping that next year all will be changed. And, oh, he also added on a flower project. So along with the bees, he was growing flowers, which, you know, go hand in hand. Anyway, I just thought this was such a cute story of one boy who, you know, from his lonesomeness in the country, decided to join 4-H. And with that in his small yard, he couldn't have livestock, but he could keep bees. And just the success and enjoyment that his family got out of that is just great to read about. Well, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting my podcast Please join me on Instagram where I post about little extra things um, in regards to research that I find. And also on Substack, victorykitchenpodcast.substack.com, where you can read about this post and many other things that I write about. Thank you so much again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.